Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a truth. You are our strength. And only in You can we find that strength to press on. Lord, You're at once our our encouragement. You're our incentive. You're our source of strength, of perseverance. We're so grateful to be Your children. To be in Your care. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your presence in our lives. Thank You for Your presence here with us this morning. We pray now, Lord, that You'll inspire us. You'll challenge us as we look at Your Word. Bless our time together and with You. In Your name we pray. Amen. It was late August of 1990. And I'll never forget the day. It was my first day of college. I was uh, excited, if not a bit apprehensive, to start my first class of my first year at UC Berkeley. I had all the materials, all the books, everything I needed. And I stopped by uh, Evans Hall, where Jan set me up with a computer account. And it was nice to see a familiar face. She gave me the information I needed, sent me off on my way. And when I stepped into the lecture auditorium for my first class, I quickly realized I wasn't in high school anymore. <laughs> Largest class I had in high school, and this was a large public high school I attended, was about 30 or 40 students. Here there was an auditorium that easily could seat 500 people. And I'm thinking, what a waste of space for one class. <clears throat> Pretty soon, there wasn't an open seat in that auditorium. A distinguished professor took the stage, fresh off some prestigious award, and I quickly realized it was his name and face on the back of the textbook. <laughs> and as if I wasn't intimidated enough, Professor Clancy, or Dr. Clancy as it was, started off our college careers by telling us to look around at each other. We did. And he said, in one week we'll have an exam. Three out of five of you will fail the first exam. Two out of those three will drop out of this class. About a month later, that third person will drop out as well. Of the remaining two, in less than four weeks after that, one will drop out of this class. At the end of the course, at the end of the semester, all that will be left will be one out of five of you. And in fact, after about four years of those hundred or so students, only about 10, maybe 20 will be left receiving a degree in what I'm teaching today. In fact, 40% of the incoming freshman class at Berkeley will drop out of college entirely. So I'm thinking, great pep talk, buddy. <laughs> Can't wait to read your book. Sure enough, the first exam came and soon after that, I, I came to class one morning and I thought class had been canceled and half of us didn't get the memo. It wasn't. I was amazed over the coming weeks at how accurate those descriptions and those predictions turned out to be. When I ask myself today why so many quit early, well, it's easy to see in retrospect. A lot of them gave in to discouragement. They failed their first test. Could they have recovered? Of course. But they gave in to the defeat instead of using it to propel them to work harder. 
A lot of others gave in to distractions. There were plenty. New college students, newfound freedom and independence, new friends, fraternities, sororities, strange new city around them. It was easy to shift focus to a million different things and and forget the reason why they were there in the first place. The professor explained this. He said, don't be surprised. These results are based on repeated history. And it was true. He, he, he explained this. He said, as human beings, we love to start new things. See, starting something comes with much excitement, promise, potential. And we love to daydream about the finish line, the graduation, the celebration, the accolades. But it's all that stuff in the middle that gets you. No one ever daydreams about the stuff in the middle. It's so true. It's so true in our Christian lives as well. See, coming to Christ isn't the hardest part. He's done all the work. We confess, we accept, we receive. We can even get off to a, to a great start. We love spending time with God. We love spending time reading His Word to see what He has for us. We love spending time with our newfound family of believers. And, and, and our minds are so focused and we catch ourselves dreaming, don't we, about heaven, about the finish line, about that graduation when we will see Him face to face. But what happens between here and there? It's all the stuff in the middle, isn't it? It gets us every time. And the success of our spiritual walk hinges upon our ability to do one very important thing. The ability to continue. We're going to look at our text. Turn with me today to Colossians. This is Paul's encouraging letter to the new Colossian church. And he reminds them of the start they received, that amazing start in chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. And you can look up at your screens here. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's who you were. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. He reminds them, remember who you were, remember where you were, remember what Christ did for you. Remember your blessed start. And church, I'm going to fix your eyes upon something. He says in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, Fix your eyes on that glorious future. He says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of the saints. The faith and love that spring, what, from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Church, remember where you were. Remember where you're going. That glorious finish. And then between here and there, we get to it. Chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. There it is. Continue. The stuff in the middle that we find so difficult. We're so focused at the start. We're so desiring the finish line. But it's that continuation part that gets so hard. Distractions get in the way, don't they? Life gets in the way. Problems find their way to us. Trials come. Persecution comes. Criticism comes. Storms arise. Clouds gather. Compromise presents itself. Work builds up. Tasks pile up. Stress riles up. Time evades us. Life happens. And soon enough, we find ourselves not continuing anything we started in the first place. And the eyes of a heartbroken father look down from above. Don't forget me. Don't forget us. Don't forget this relationship. You know, we're fighting a battle that's, that's unnatural to us. It doesn't come naturally or easily for us in our human nature to continue living a disciplined life, a life of accountability, of sacrifice, of consistency, of focus. It's hard for us to continue anything. It takes work. It takes effort to remind ourselves daily, hourly, to continue to press on, to keep going. It's not impossible. In ourselves, in our flesh, it is impossible. But in Him, with His strength, with God's power, there is no impossibility. No matter what happens to us and around us, we can press on. We can continue. We're going to look today at, at Paul's message, which is a, as applicable and crucial to us today as it was to that Colossian church. Continue. What are we to continue in? How are we to continue? We're going to look at five critical areas that Paul addresses here in which we must press on to have a successful and continuing walk with God. What are they? First, continue in the doctrine. A dying concept in Christianity today is, is the notion, is the concept of doctrine. What is doctrine? It's the body of teachings, the principles, the positions, the beliefs that Scripture teaches us. We've somehow either lost interest or lost the discipline and effort it takes to learn what the Bible teaches and instructs on all matters. You should know what you believe and why you believe it. What are the fundamentals of your faith? You, you've heard that, that response, that frustrating response, when a Christian was, was asked the question, what, what do you believe in? And he said, well, I believe what my church believes. What does your church believe? You know, the, the, my church believes the same way I do. <laughs> well, what do you both believe? Oh, we both believe the same thing. 
You've got to know what you believe. There's a dangerous and growing trend in Christianity today in churches to marginalize doctrine. Fewer and fewer churches, you'll notice this, will post their statement of beliefs anymore. Doctrine isn't important. Forget all the rules. All we need is love. Turn on your televisions most Sunday and, and you'll find preachers giving sermons with no doctrinal foundation. Non-confrontational, non-challenging, no mention of sin, no justice, all love, tickle my ears, make me feel good about myself. And guess what? Thousands fill the auditoriums. It shouldn't be a surprise. Second Timothy 4.3 predicted this. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's either the excuse of the lazy or the excuse of those allergic to authority. All we need is love. Forget beliefs. Forget doctrinal statements. Forget rules. Forget facts. All we need is love. You know, there's no practice of life in which that would work. All we need is love. Imagine, imagine telling your spouse, honey, I love you and that's all that should matter. Sounds good so far. And then if she were to ask, what's my name? Say, look, I don't care about these petty facts. I love you and that should be enough. Uh-huh. And when's our anniversary? Oh, come on. Let's not ba- bother with facts. My love is enough. It wouldn't fly. There's no practice of life that would fly. You can't go far without knowing the facts. It sounds so wonderful and spiritual, though, doesn't it? Who needs rules and facts and instructions? Let's just live in love, bask in God's acceptance and grace. Now, good luck with that. Wake me up first storm that rocks your world because you have no foundation upon which to stand. You have no point of reference You don't know the first thing the Bible teaches about what you're going through. What are you standing on exactly? You know, it's critical to know the facts, the instructions contained in God's Word. Why? So that we can build up knowledge? No. So that we can build foundation. Look what Paul said. Continue to be rooted. At its heart, God's Word isn't just theology for theology's sake. It's, it's not an educational practice. It's not an intellectual practice. It's theology for practical living. We learn how to live, how to behave, how to respond to life, how to make decisions. We learn about God and His ways so that we can learn more about ourselves and how we should live and choose and act. If God's Word isn't the basis for how you live your life, what is? If you're not growing in doctrinal knowledge, what constitutes the reasons behind your decision making? How do you know when you're compromising if you don't know what you believe in the first place and why you believe it? Friends, doctrine is important. How can you make decisions without knowing what the Bible teaches about priorities, counsel and prayer? How can you raise children without knowing what the Bible teaches about discipline and relationships? How can you choose a spouse without knowing what the Bible says about 
being equally yoked. Love will be my guide. My heart will direct me. Get out of the clouds and come back to reality. Come back to earth. Get grounded. Let the Bible be your guide. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust love. Get to know the Bible. Continue in the doctrine. Continue in the knowledge of God's Word. Continue learning more about God, His ways, His instructions, and His principles. If you're here today, you're in a good place. You're in a good place to learn. And I can wholeheartedly say that that doctrine and its practical application without compromise is the very foundation and basis of this assembly. No compromise, no candy coating, no altering for the sake of, of acceptance and popularity and numbers. If you don't want the scriptural truth of the matter, don't come here. We can't make up new facts, new doctrines that God accepts your lifestyle, your sin, your way. Well, the truth doesn't always feel good. But if it's in the Scriptures, guess what? It's the truth. And that's what's taught here. We can't conjure up messages of tolerance, of acceptance, of many ways to get to God. It'll never be the case here. We hold true to what the Bible teaches in addition to nothing. No additional appendix. No recommended reading. No philosophical or theological addendums. No additional prophecies that took place later outside of God's Word. Nothing. Nothing added. Nothing subtracted. Nothing else required. Just what the Bible teaches. Dive into it. Learn it. Be rooted in it like Paul said. Get to know it. Continue in the doctrine. Second point. Continue in faith. Paul said, continue to be strengthened in the faith as you were taught. What does it mean to live a life of faith? Well, it means to trust God. You take Him at His word. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith very clearly for us. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Trust in the dark. Do we live that way? Do we live trusting God knowing that He has a plan for our lives even though we can't see past the circumstances in front of us? Do we live trusting Him implicitly? 2 Corinthians 5-7 reminds us as believers, we live by faith, not by sight. Do we live with the assurance and attitude that God knows what's best for our lives? Don't continue living in fear. Don't continue living in doubt. Continue in faith. And don't ever dare underestimate what faith can do. Here's another one that isn't natural to us. We want to act. We don't want to sit and, and trust someone else. Don't ever underestimate what faith in God can do. It wasn't action. It wasn't man-made accomplishment that parted the Red Sea. Faith did that. Faith delivered millions of Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh without a single shot being fired. Faith brought down the walls of Jericho. Faith shut the mouths of lions all through the night for a trusting man of God. Faith brought three young men safely through a burning oven 
without a hint or smell of smoke or a burn mark on them. There is nothing that God cannot do and cannot accomplish through our faith in Him. Continue in faith. What can faith do? What do you need? What do you need today? It's possible. God can do it and all we have to do is trust Him. We don't always have to know the when, the why, as long as we know the who. We don't always have to know what to do, when to do it. We trust Him. God honors our faith. He rewards our faith and our trust in Him. And He never fails to come through. Someone wise once said this. He said, I don't want to know what tomorrow holds. I just want to trust who holds tomorrow and go on by faith. That's how God wants us to live. Everything we know of God, everything we learned of His ways, all those principles and the doctrine we, we talked about, it's got to be lived out daily because it's real. Is what you believe real in your life? Do you practice it? Do you live it? Does it shape your decisions, your priorities, your attitudes, your actions? Continue in faith and you will see God work in every area and aspect of your lives. I've heard people say, I want more of God in my life. It's a great thought. It's a great desire, but it's not going to happen until God gets more of you. Give Him all of your trust. Give Him all of your faith. Give Him all of your time. Spend time with Him. Spend time in His Word. Spend time meditating upon His Word. Meditate upon Him. Open your heart up to God. That's the biggest part of living a life of faith, isn't it? Spend time praying for guidance, for wisdom, for strength, so that the principles you learn and the character you want to have become real in your life. They become a reality and not just notes in your Bible. Live by faith and continue in faith. Continue in the doctrine. Continue in faith. And how do we live a life of faith? Next point. Continue in fellowship. The first church set the example for us. Acts 2.42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And 1 John 1, 3 and 7 says this, We proclaim to you what we have heard and seen so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Fellowship is the natural extension of our salvation, of following Christ. If we walk in His light, we fellowship with those who are like-minded, who are walking with Him. Someone described fellowship as this. Fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers that expresses itself in outer cooperation with Christ and one another in accomplishing God's work on earth. It's not just about being together, but it's about doing together. And it's not just about doing anything together. It's about working together to accomplish God's will. Now we must ask, why is it so important to have fellowship with other believers? It's not required to attend church. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that's all I need. 
Friend, there's a great benefit to fellowship, to being with and being around others who are like-minded. It binds us together. It binds us close. We encourage each other. We correct each other. We lean on one another. We're accountable to each other. You know the easiest target for the devil to infiltrate? The lone sheep. The sheep outside the flock. The one who's out of fellowship with other believers. The one whose thinking can be warped by some whispered lies. And it goes unchecked and uncorrected because he's not close enough to anyone. He's not accountable to anyone. Fellowship isn't just scriptural. It's beneficial. And it's not just beneficial, it's critical. Yeah, but I have problems with this church. I don't like the elements of of that church. I don't like the music of that one. Friend, if you're looking for the perfect church, guess what? You'll never find it. You've heard it said, if there was ever a perfect church, it stopped being perfect the day you or I walked in. (laughs) No church is perfect because guess what? It's made up of, of you and me. It's made up of imperfect people. Stay where God planted you and work to make it even better. I read a great statement recently. It said, this is my church. It is composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do a great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am generous. It will bring others into its fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. It will be a church of loyalty and love, of faith and service, if I who make it what it is am filled with these. Therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of being all these things I want my church to be. Be consistent. Stay in touch. Stay connected. Worship together. We do a lot of that. Pray together. Laugh together. We certainly have done that cry together. We've had our share. Exalt. Encourage. Uplift one another. Continue in fellowship. Fourth point. And the natural extension from fellowship. Continue in service. Serve Christ by serving others. Makes sense. We spend time with one another. We serve together. We work for the cause of Christ together. Galatians 5.13 reminds us, serve one another in love. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ teaches us to bear one another's burdens. How do we serve God? Help each other. Meet someone's need today. Lend a hand of aid where you can. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. We all have gifts or blessings from God. We're stewards of those blessings. God gave them to us to use in His work. In particular, we should use them to minister to and serve one another. Use what God gave you in the ministries of the church. We just had an annual general meeting this past Wednesday. We reviewed every ministry 
every ministry taking place in this church today and those assigned to fulfill the needs. And it was page after page after page, slide after slide. There's a lot of needs in God's church. There's a lot of hands needed on deck. Are you willing to step up to give of yourself and your time and your talents and your efforts? God has called us to do that. Do it faithfully. Do it consistently. Continue in service. Continue in the doctrine. Continue in faith. Continue in fellowship. Continue in service. Last point. Continue in thanksgiving. Paul said, continue overflowing with thankfulness. Hebrews 13.15 reminds us, Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Our expressions of thanks and gratitude to our faithful Father should be a part of our daily living. It should be embedded in us. His praises should continually be in our hearts, on our lips. We're a blessed people. We're so blessed. We've been given so much in countless ways. And we should in turn thank Him. Thank Him regularly. Countless ways we've been blessed to experience what? His goodness, His mercy, His love. Every day we can tell the Lord, thank you. Every day we can be thankful for another day He's blessed us with. Another breath He's given us. Another morning we can get up and serve Him. Even when the days are difficult, we can pray, Lord, I'm thankful that by Your stripes I am healed. Lord, I'm thankful that the plans You have for me are for good, not for evil. Lord, I'm thankful that You said You would give me not more than I could bear. Lord, I'm thankful that You said You'd never leave me alone. We have so much to be thankful for. And guess what? If we're living a life continuing in the knowledge of the doctrine, continuing to live out our faith as a daily reality, continuing to fellowship with one another, continuing to serve Him with everything we have, we will be thankful people. There'll be no room for discontent and dissatisfaction. We'll know better because we've learned the doctrine of satisfaction. That our lines have fallen in pleasant places. That God has a different portion for each one of us. And that He knows what's best for each one. We will always be in remembrance of what He's done for us. We'll be close to Him because we live by faith, bathing our every thought and decision in prayer. We'll be uplifted and encouraged by our fellow believers who can also help correct our wrong thinking. We'll be busy serving God by serving one another, ministering in the church. And guess what? When, when our minds are busy, there's no room for idle thoughts, for discontent for being disgruntled. Thanksgiving, therefore, flows from a life lived continuously in Him. If we're living doing all those other things, continuing in all those things, we can't help but be thankful. We know better. 
Genuine thankfulness. It's not forced. It's not faked. It's not manufactured or fabricated. It's not a smiling face covering a disgruntled heart. It's real. It's genuine. It's true. It's natural gratitude that comes from living in Him. Continue in thanksgiving. Continue in the doctrine. Continue in faith. Continue in fellowship. Continue in service. And continue in thanksgiving. I think if we do that, we certainly fulfill Paul's instructions for us to continue to live in Him. We talked about distractions earlier. Guess what? As we get older, in years, in our walk with God, do they go away? No, they get bigger. They get bigger, they get worse. And the key, and the key in every discipline of life is to focus. Ignore the distractions and focus on the task at hand. No one, no one had more distractions than Paul. Physical ailments, threats, hardships, criticisms, beatings, imprisonments. What did he say? Look at this. Acts 20, verse 24. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul, if you don't quit preaching, we're going to stone you. Paul, if, if you don't quit preaching, we're going to throw you in jail. Paul, if you don't quit preaching, we're going to kill you. How did he respond? Stone me? Throw me in jail? Kill me? Already happened, been there, and don't care. He didn't quit. He turned his face to God and kept his eyes focused on the prize. He tuned out the distractions. He kept focused on his mission and the finish line. Keep your eyes on the prize. Finish strong. Finish with joy. Finish the ministry. So many start. So few finish. Keep going. Don't quit. Continue. Carry on. Press forward. It's hard. God will help you. It's painful. God will soothe you. It's consuming. God will preserve you. Press on. Continue on. And one glorious day, you will reach the shores of heaven and nail-scarred hands will be outstretched for you. And you will hear that voice for the first time. That tender voice. Say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm going to close with a story. A story about a man named Bill Broadhurst. Bill Broadhurst was an avid runner. And he entered a a 10K race in Omaha, Nebraska. A race that Bill Rogers, who was well-renowned, would win in less than 30 minutes. But Broadhurst had a handicap. He was paralyzed on his entire left side from an aneurysm early in life. But he still loved to run. 
and for him to even be in the same race as his hero, Bill Rogers, was the greatest thing he could imagine. Long after the rest of the field had finished the race, the banners had been taken down. The traffic had begun to flow on the roads. There was nothing left that would tell you a race had been run there except one man, Bill Broadhurst, who was still running the race. One hour in, his partially paralyzed left side started to feel like dead weight. At two hours and 20 minutes, the pain was so intense and throbbing, he didn't think he could go on. Two hours before that, Bill Rogers had finished the race. And now Broadhurst was nearing the place where the finish line was. A couple of kids on bikes rode beside him and said, Hey, hey mister, you still running the race? It's been over for hours. Somebody already won. They finished first. Why don't you quit? The race is over. Broadhurst replied, I can't. I can't quit. I have to make it to my hero at the end of the line. And he kept running. As he approached the place where he knew the finish line used to stand, his hero, Bill Rogers, and about 30 people stepped out from an alley and placed a banner up. And they strung a makeshift ribbon across the road. And Bill Broadhurst stumbled across the finish line. And there stood his hero, Bill Rogers, who took off the ribbon from his neck and placed it on the neck of Broadhurst. And he said, friend, you're the winner because you never quit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that day is soon coming when we will see you face to face. But like we sang, but until then, with joy, we carry on. Help us, Father, to continue living in you, to continue in the doctrine, to continue in faith, in fellowship, in service, and always, always with a thankful spirit for all that you've done for us. Give us your strength, Lord, when we feel we can't go on. Give us your power when, when we know we can't overcome. Give us your wisdom when we don't know what to do. Help us to press on. Help us. Help us to continue and to finish strong. Thank you, Father. We love you and pray in the precious name of your Son. Amen.